0: Good morning. I was uh, I was having a conversation about my uh, about my dad earlier today, who passed away earlier this year, and and uh, um, he was my pastor all growing up. So I'm a preacher's kid, right? So any of you didn't know that I'm a preacher's kid, and uh, so I grew up listening to my dad say all kinds of things. And one of his favorite phrases that he would say, in, in at the at, at the close of a worship time like this that we've had this morning was so good. He said, "Boys and ladies and gentlemen, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet." And I'm going to tell you, if you hadn't had your fire lit this morning, then your wood's wet, and I'm hoping to help dry it out. So let's turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to continue uh, our study through the book of Philippians this morning, and we're going to turn to chapter 3. And we've been in, in this series that I've entitled, Who Are We? It's a question and, and it's a question that I'm hoping that I'm going to help lead us to fully answer. Who are we here? And if you know it, tell me. We are a you-all, gospel-first, servant-hearted family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. Y'all can do better than that. I know you can. So we're going to try it again. If you, if you read it with me up there, and if you know it, say it out loud. We are a you-all, gospel-first servant-hearted family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. Very good. I knew you could. And, and what, I'm wanting, what I'm wanting and attempting to do through this series is to take us through the study of the book of Philippians and also to just kind of break down that identity statement into individual components, bite-sized components that we can kind of get on and and chew on and try to understand exactly who God is calling us to be according to His Scriptures and, and who we need to be as His followers. And so that's what I want us to continue to do today. And today we come to begin to consider what it means to be people who want our lives to count for the glory of God. You know, we think along those lines. When we say that we want our lives to count, that's, that's saying it positively. We could also say it negatively, use like kind of the double negative there and say, what we also what we don't want is for our lives not to count. We don't want to go through life our, and, and end up at the end and, and our lives didn't count for anything. We want our lives to count for the glory of God. In other words, more simply stated, we don't want to waste our lives. I had lunch with a friend this week and uh, actually Ted and I were, were, were meeting together and, and, and with another friend and, and we were just talking about books that we had been reading, books that we had read in the past, just sharing back and forth with one another and, and, and it, I asked if, if my friend had ever read the book by John Piper entitled Don't Waste Your Life and in the process I just kind of briefly explained to him the impact that that book actually had had upon me. I first read it about 18 years ago. And to be honest, it was the title that hooked me. I mean, just on the bookshelf, "Don't Waste Your Life." That's a great hook. If you're going to write a book, put a hook in it like that because it'll get somebody like me walking by and just seeing it. And and uh, but but that's it. Don't who who wants to waste their lives? Um, Who among us doesn't want to live their life to the fullest, make the biggest impact that you can make on the world in which you're living? Well, I remember picking that book up off the bookshelf. and and finding a chair and beginning to read words that that would have a a lasting impact upon the trajectory of my life. Um, I remember how the opening illustration captured my attention. Like me, John Piper is a preacher's kid. And so he was recalling a a service in which his dad, who was an evangelist, was was passionately delivering an evangelistic sermon. And at the close of that sermon, an elderly gentleman came forward and placed his faith in Jesus Christ and was saved. But what touched Piper and what he wrote about in his book was that the memory that he could never erase from his mind was that this elderly man just sobbed. And he sobbed uncontrollably with with his head in his hands and he kept repeating this phrase, I've wasted, I've wasted, I've wasted. See, even though this man was truly thankful that God in His infinite grace and His mercy had, had saved him from his sins, he experienced sorrow because he recognized that he had wasted his whole life pursuing things that simply didn't matter. And that opening illustration actually launches Piper in this book to, 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 to plead with people never to let that be their story, to make sure that they do not come to the end of their lives and realize that they've wasted it, that that they've spent the lifetime pursuing things that ultimately did not matter. In fact, that they've spent their lives pursuing things that actually drove them farther away from that which is of the most significant importance in their life, and that is having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue in our study of of the book of Philippians today, we're going to see that that is actually the same message that the Apostle Paul delivers to the believers who make up the church there in Philippi. Paul doesn't doesn't want them to waste their lives. He doesn't want them to, to pursue the wrong things. Rather, what he does is he appeals to them to be people who make their lives count for the glory of God. And that's what I want us to look at and read together this morning. So begin reading with me there in chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 11. Hear the word of God this morning. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and for your mercy, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in this place together as brothers and sisters in Christ with our Bibles open in our lap and being able to read the very words that you have authored to send to us. And God, I pray that you would use these words to transform our lives. That this would not just be some sort of academic exercise, but that this would be, this would be an opportunity for us to truly hear from you this morning. So give us spiritual ears and a, and a heart that is open to that which you would have us to hear and to see. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, uh, You'll probably immediately notice there in that first verse that that Paul is a preacher. And you know he's a preacher because he uses the word finally as if he's about to conclude. But he's still got two more chapters of good material. Actually, the word finally can also legitimately be translated as furthermore or uh, so then, now then. It's really a transition word. It's it's less of a a concluding word as much as it is a transitioning word. So perhaps it's a little uncharitable for us to say, as one of my friends used to say, that Paul didn't know how to land his plane. Uh, That's that's probably not the case. Instead, what he does is he's transitioning from everything that he's talked about prior to this in in, in the first two chapters of his letter. And and what he's doing is, is he's, He's transitioning now into, into, into more of the application, and he's hitting them in the heart. This is really where you're going to see is Paul's going to the heart of the matter here. In fact, what I want you to do today is I've just provided you some hooks that we're going to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through. There's going to be six of them, so just hang on. We're going to get to them just all the way as we work our way through the text. The first thing that I want you to know, though, is Paul begins this portion, this, this portion of the letter with a command. He begins with a command, and, 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 and the command is this. Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice. Rejoicing and, and joy is a major theme in the book of Philippians. Paul uses the word nine times throughout the letter, and here he tells the believers to rejoice in the Lord. You'll hear me say this again and again and again. Theology hangs on prepositions, and really, really good theology hangs on really good prepositional phrases and so notice it is to rejoice but how in what are we to rejoice you rejoice in the Lord Paul is saying that the nature of the rejoicing and the joy that we are to have as believers is to rest in a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ himself now I pointed this out in the past when when Paul is talking about joy here we must not get that confused with always being happy and always living in some sort of state of of, of ecstatic exhilaration, I know of no one who lives every moment of their life happy or ecstatic or exhilarated. The Apostle Paul did not live every moment of his life that way. Consequently, what Paul is talking about, as I said, is not something, he's not talking about an emotion that is tied to our human Uh, situation to our circumstances to our physical circumstances rather he is tying our joy to a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ John MacArthur he he offers this definition in, in, in a book he's written he says biblical joy is a supernatural emotion that is produced as a result of choosing to obey God and walking in the spirit as a result he says Uh, Biblical joy will produce a deep confidence in the future that is based on trust in God's purpose and power. And listen, as Paul repeatedly states throughout this letter, he states that the mark of a true believer will be that they are filled with joy despite their circumstances. They will be filled with joy because they recognize that they they possess something that is greater than anything that their circumstances could provide. They possess a a true and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. So I think that helps us understand this command here that he begins with and when he tells us to rejoice. But then notice that, that Paul immediately follows that that word, with, a, with the word of warning. In fact, the next hook on your outline is simply this. this we, see it, we see a caution. He follows the command up with a caution. In the latter half of verse 1, Paul alludes to the teaching that he had already given to the Philippian believers at, at another point prior to the writing of this letter. He says, for, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. We might even be able to to translate Paul's kind of paraphrase what he says there this way. He says, look, guys, I I know I've said these things to you before. But it's no trouble for me to say them to you again. Because they are important for you as safeguards. These things that I am repeating to you, they're like guardrails that will keep you from falling off a dangerous cliff. Now. I'll, I'll take just a, a point of privilege for a moment. Notice, what, notice that Paul repeats some things that he had said to them in the past again. And sometimes as we, we come here, we say, oh, I, I've heard that theme before. I've heard that. Through repetition, it is through repeating the things that the Bible says that it drills down deep into our hearts and into our souls. It, it, it's not enough sometimes for us to think, well, I can just, long as I just know that out there and I've heard it that one time, but that's enough. All of you who are teachers out there know when you taught your children in school, you had to repeat the same concept and the same ideas over and over again in order for it to distill itself down into the souls. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, it's no trouble for me to repeat to you once again what I've said to you in the past because this is absolutely necessary that you get your hands around it and it gets into your mind and it drops all the way to your heart and it becomes that which moves you out into how you live. So what are the things that Paul believed were so important and necessary for him to repeat to these Philippian believers? Well, notice, notice that the warnings that he gives there are in verse 2. He says, beware of dogs... Beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, his, his, his caution here is obviously filled with some very foreboding images. Um, what's he talking about? Well, well, here's where the knowledge of what Paul has written in other letters really comes in handy for us to know what he's speaking about here. Because you see a major battle that Paul had to uh, undertake and consistently fight was with a sect of Jews that were, in, were named the Judaizers. These Jews went around preaching that Gentile believers, in order for them to be fully accepted by God, they had to ritualistically become Jews by observing all of the Old Testament laws, all of the, the, the ways that the, the law code that the Jews were required uh, to keep. And, and, and part of that was, was for the men to be circumcised. And such folks, as I said, were known as Judaizers, and Paul consistently warned those throughout all of the churches that were in the Gentile regions, he warned them to watch out for them. And the reason that he warned them so so diligently was because they did not preach a gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Rather, they preached a gospel that was built on grace plus works. They taught that salvation for a Gentile was only possible if they kept all of those ritualistic and dietary laws of the Jewish people. And this was a heresy. And Paul attacked it head on in the book of Galatians and he also wrote about it in the book of Romans. And these Judaizers are the ones that Paul evidently had in mind when he warned the Philippians here about this same thing. I find it very, very ironic. Many have noted the irony here that, that, that Paul uses these words. He calls these, he says, beware of the dogs. Now, this is what's interesting is that the Judaizers, those who, who were true Jews, whenever they talked about Gentiles, they would use that same word. They would talk about them as dogs. And listen, when they talked about them as dogs, they're not talking about those cute little lap dogs that so many of y'all have at home, a little fluffy Little, 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 you know, they're not talking about the the golden retriever that just comes up and just use love on him and y'all just lick one another back and forth. That's not the kind of dogs... That's not the kind of dogs that that the Judaizers, when they were referring to the Gentiles, they were talking about those mangrove cur dogs that would run up and down the streets in packs and live. They were mangy. They had diseases. You would not want to get near them. You, You went as far away from them as you could. That's what they meant by the term dog. And what's interesting and ironic is that Paul says, that's the term that you use to talk about the Gentiles. And here I am talking to Gentile believers and telling them they better beware of you. You because you're the dogs. You see how that? Paul is Paul's getting, he, he, he's using some really interesting ways of talking about it. Not only that, he says, secondly, all of you who are concerned about the externals of the law and about doing the right things, well, you're actually the evil men. And all of you who want to add circumcision to the work of Christ as a way to enhance it, well, You're actually becoming nothing more than mutilators of the flesh. That's a strong word. These Judaizers were preaching a false gospel of faith plus works. And Paul goes on the offensive and he calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers and he calls them mutilators. Then in verse three, he goes on to refute their teaching. Paul says, we are the circumcision. Well, who is the we that he's talking about? He says, well, those who worship God in spirit, those who, those who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and those who have no confidence in the flesh. You want to talk about circumcision? That's who the circumcision is. Now, it's important to remember that the right of circumcision, R-I-T-E, the right of circumcision, it was initially established as a way to identify who was included in, in God's gracious covenant with Abraham back in the Old Testament. But we must never forget that the Old Testament rite that was performed on the flesh, it was designed to point to a deeper spiritual issue. It was designed to point to a matter of the heart. It was designed to point to this transformation that occurred when the heart of an individual is fully submitted to the to to God Himself, and that the Spirit of God comes in and changes that person, transforms that person from the inside out through the power of God. And because that transformation is accomplished by God, then no one can boast in anything that they've done in and of themselves. they, They couldn't take pride in anything that they had accomplished. They couldn't even take pride in the actual procedure that had been performed on them itself. They couldn't, they couldn't take pride in anything. Rather, their only boast can only be in Jesus. Paul says that those who really belong to God's gracious covenant with Abraham are those who have ceased striving and boasting in their own efforts and rather worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and they put no confidence in the flesh. And what that means very simply is that if we want our lives to count for the glory of God, brothers and sisters, we must constantly be on guard against taking pride in our own personal achievements and in the qualities that we think set us a step or two above the rest of the folks around us. You see, we've got to be on guard against being like those Judaizers. We must guard against the subtle temptation to look around us and make horizontal comparisons and and, and falsely assume that God accepts us based upon how far we've come in our religiosity, in the performance of our religion, or how much better we look in our own eyes in comparison to someone else. We must beware of of buying into a works-based righteousness Because our boast must only and always be in Jesus and in him alone. Paul said that such a faith that is based upon works is empty. But note that he goes on to prove that point, not by pointing his finger at somebody else. Really, that's. That's not his point. He doesn't point his finger at somebody else. In fact, he holds himself up as an example. In fact, that's the third point that I want you to see. We've already seen the first two. Now the third one is this. Paul presents us with a case study. He presents us with a case study. Paul declares that as it pertained to one who had taught the talk and walked the walk of works based righteousness, he had stood head and shoulders above the crowd. In fact, listen again to what he says beginning in verse 4. He says, if anyone thinks that He may have confidence in the flesh. I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Every time I say something, it just points people more and more to the fact that Look, my my chest just keeps coming out. My head just keeps getting bigger. Paul just says, if you want to talk about things of the flesh, I'll throw my resume up against anybody's. Three reasons he had to boast. First was his pedigree of race. A purebred Jew circumcised on the eighth day. It wasn't something performed to him later. A, A Jew, a pure Jew was circumcised on the eighth day, just as Jesus was. Paul says, that's me. He was of the stock of of Benjamin and a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only was it his pedigree, though, it was his performance. He, He says here he became a Pharisee, which tells us that his biblical knowledge was unparalleled and it was superb. And furthermore, as it pertained to moral living, he says there at the end, I've lived blamelessly, not as it pertains to the law. Pedigree, performance, and then there was also prestige. He said, I became a zealot for the law to the point of, of, of pursuing anybody who, who didn't take the Old Testament law seriously. Like those Christians that I thought, I, I persecuted them. My reputation was such that I was a zealot. So Paul says, if you, want to, if you want to know what works-based righteousness looks like, look at me because I had pedigree, I had performance, I had prestige. That was my life. And if horizontal comparisons are what we're going to engage in, then I'll put my mind up against anyone's. Here's something we need to think about for just a moment. You know, as it pertains to someone who who desired to, to make his life count prior to his conversion, Paul would have been the ultimate example for people to follow. Not only was he dealt an incredible hand at birth, but he had capitalized upon those advantages and had taken and had added to them a knowledge and a zeal and a commitment that far exceeded all of the rest of those who were his contemporaries. Today, he would, be, he would be the poster child or he would be the headliner for every self-help conference that would occur. He would be the keynote speaker at every major political function. He would be the one that anyone would want to model their life after. He would be the Apostle Paul. But Paul came to see things completely different from that. More accurately, he came to count things differently. That leads me to the fourth thing I want you to see this morning. Paul presents for us a calculation. A calculation. Verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Think about that for just a moment. I'm afraid that, that sometimes we become so familiar with the text of the Bible So familiar with Paul's resume and his testimony that we fail to recognize just how radical a statement that is. What things were gain to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Effectively, Paul says that all of the things that at one point he would have considered to be deposits into his spiritual bank account weren't actually credits at all. They were deficits. In fact, he states that the very things that he had once evaluated as benefiting him had in reality been working to destroy him because they were blinding him to his need of the true righteousness which God required a righteousness that was not based upon anything that he could produce of his own, but based upon the finished work of Jesus. And notice Paul is so intent on communicating this fact that he expands upon that calculation by what he says in verse eight in verse eight. He says, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish That I may know Christ, that I may gain Christ. Paul says that not only are our attempts to work for and earn our salvation worthless, but in fact, all things are rubbish in comparison to Jesus. Rubbish is really too kind a word for what Paul writes The better word is dung, excrement, human waste. Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says in this verse, Paul uses a word that makes little boys giggle and their mothers blush. Paul says that everything he had ever put stock in throughout his life amounted to a pile of dung in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Listen, Paul's calculation of his life forces us to do the same thing of our own. We too have to perform that same sort of calculation of our own life. We too must recognize that all the doing and all the accomplishing and all the working and all the amassing and all the saving that you could ever do and engage in would never add one penny to your spiritual bank account. In fact if you're depending on any of those things as your hope and your source of salvation, you should be warned in actual fact that those very things are sucking your spiritual bank account dry. According to the Scriptures, the one and only treasure that that counts for anything in this life and for the life to come is the excellence and the surpassing and the far exceeding and the so much greater than knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord your life. To put it in the words of that old man at the beginning of John Piper's book, if you do not want to end up at the end of your life with your head in your hands sobbing over and over again, I wasted it, I wasted it, then you must determine in your heart that there is nothing more valuable to you than a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you must also be warned that simply coming to church putting money in an offering box, singing the songs, going to Sunday school, being kind to others. As fine as those things are, they are none of them are substitutes for a personal relationship with Jesus. Not one of those things will add one penny to your spiritual bank account. Listen, the driving driving question of Scripture is not what you can do. What can I do to make myself acceptable before God? That's not the driving question of Scripture. Rather, the question is, do you know Him? Is He your Lord? Do you value Him and, and treasure Him above everything else in your life? Is He the joy around which everything else in your life is centered? so that everything else in comparison to Jesus pales listen i want you to know that that is what biblical christianity is all about it is driving us to jesus and to the centrality of jesus and that he is the greatest treasure that we could ever grasp and ever hold it is not about rejoicing in what you've done in 2021 it is not about rejoicing in in the new you in 2022 It is none of that. It is about driving you to a joy that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ is mine and I am His. It calls you to have a confidence and a trust in Him and in Him alone. And brothers and sisters, a life that counts for the glory of God will be a life that treasures Christ above everything else. But you may be still wondering, why in the world is He so important? What is it about Jesus? Why do I need him so much? You haven't told me that. Fortunately, the text does. Notice the next hook on your outline because Paul tells us about a credit that's there. There's a credit that he tells us about. In verse eight, he says, I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness, my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul, Paul makes it clear that there are two very vital, important things that Jesus provides us that makes a relationship with him infinitely valuable to us. And the first one is righteousness. To be made righteous literally means to be made right with God. It is a word that is taken straight out of the courts of the law. And it means to be acquitted. It means to be declared right. Paul makes it clear that on our own, you and I will never be declared right. On our own, we will never be declared righteous. In fact, that has been his point all through this entire text. Works-based righteousness does not exist. It adds nothing to your spiritual bank account. It is only a deficit. It is only dung. Consequently, though we need righteousness, Paul tells us that the only kind that will ever save us is not our own righteousness, but rather it is a righteousness that comes from God by faith. It is a righteousness that is credited to our account. In other words, the righteousness that you and I need doesn't depend on our works, but on our faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in the fact that Christ has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. Faith in the fact that that he lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. The life that you and I could never live if we had a thousand lifetimes to try. Jesus did it. He was perfect. He lived a sinless life. And then he absorbed upon himself the, the punishment of our sin on Calvary's cross. And it is faith that he died there in our place so that we might be saved. It is faith that he rose again on the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And it is faith that comes from God. Faith that not in our own achievements, but faith in what Christ has achieved for us. So through our faith in Christ, we are credited with Christ's righteousness. But there's a second thing that Christ provides us that makes a relationship with him infinitely valuable to us. And that is that once we have been saved and once we have received the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ, he then secures for us the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection. See, Paul Paul speaks of the resurrection in two different ways. He describes it as a present power in which believers may currently live. The resurrection power that allows us to face persecution and to face uncertainty because of our relationship with Christ. So that we become increasingly more and more like Him. But Paul also describes it as a future resurrection. It's a, it's, it's a resurrection power that we live in today, but it's a future resurrection that we will one day be able to experience in which we will be in, uh, live eternally in heaven with Him. In other words, because of our relationship with Christ by faith, we are assured that at the resurrection of the dead, we will be raised to live with Christ forever. And it is that resurrection power that we have in this life coupled with the assurance of the future resurrection that leads me to that very last hook that you will find there on your outline. We find then in these words presented for us a confidence, a confidence. Listen, when you possess the type of relationship with Christ that Paul speaks about in this passage, when you are united to him by faith, you recognize that you can face anything that this world throws at you because of the power of the resurrection. And because, because you know that one day you will stand vindicated before the bar of God's judgment because of what Christ has done for you. Such a recognition should instill within you a tremendous assurance and a tremendous confidence. After all, What do you have to be afraid of? To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul in another passage, what can ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can you imagine anything that can come and rip you out of his hand? Is there anything or anybody that can ever come and take you away from him? If you think that there is, then go back and read Romans 8. Read it from front to back. And you will come to be concluded just as Paul did. I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come, nothing, he says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the same resurrection power and confidence with which he writes here in Philippians 3. And friends, I want you to know that's an incredibly freeing passage. For many of you, I fear that for years you have been bound by a religion that is based on works. And I fear that, that you have somehow misconstrued the gospel which says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved with something other than the gospel that says, do this or act this way or be like that and you will be saved. And my free, fear is that some of you are placing value on the wrong things. And in doing so, you have missed the simplicity of the good news. If that is the case, then this passage that Paul wrote to these Philippian believers is a clarion call to you not to waste your life. Stop treasuring for yourself things that amount to nothing and that are in fact less than nothing, things that only become debits to your spiritual life. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. A life that counts for the glory of God will abandon the pursuit of worthless things that only drive us farther away from him and will treasure Christ above everything else in this world. That's where we have to begin. With a life that is going to count for the glory of God, it has to begin there. The fact is all of us one day will stand before a just and holy God who will call our lives into account and when that day comes, the question will not be well what did you do to to save yourself? The question will not be what did you what did you you do that 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 makes you worthy to stand before me. The question will not be do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. The question will not be how did you compare with somebody else? Did you finish a little further ahead or Take the test a little faster. That will not be what God asks. No, the only question that will matter in eternity is do you know Christ? Is he your treasure? Have you trusted in him and in him alone? Friend, if you you live your life any other way and you trust in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have wasted your life. And I plead with you today, don't do that. Don't waste it. Jesus Christ stands ready to receive any and all who will humble themselves before him, place their faith in him, repent of their sins and trust in him. If you've done that, then I plead with you today that you remind yourself that your treasure is not in this world. Christ, Christ has not called you and he has not equipped you for his service so that you pursue other things more important to you than Jesus. No, he has called you to a life that counts for the glory of God. He has called you to lay down your life for his sake and to treasure him above everything else. That is what he has called you to do. And that is what he has called we who are part of this church family at Ivy Creek to do. We who are you all, gospel first, servant-hearted family of believers, who want our lives to count for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the challenge that it presents each and every one of us. There's no way that we can sidestep the truth of what you say to us through your word. So now, rather than sidestep it, I pray that we would confront it we would embrace it. We would recognize how absolutely important it is for us. Help us, Lord, to know that a relationship with you that where you pursue us and that we treasure you above all is so absolutely important and critical. Father, I believe that there are those in this room today that need to make some decisions with regard to their life and regard to your lordship so i pray that that would occur today i pray that any running that they have done previous to this point in their life would stop that they would be overtaken by the grace of god that they would embrace you as their all in all there may be some believers here who've been running as well sidestepping responsibilities choosing to do other things and pursue other things rather than you, I pray that today would be the day that they would stop that journey, that they would come back to you and completely trust you for everything that they need. I ask for you to be Lord of this time of invitation and Lord in our hearts, Lord of this church. In Christ's holy name I pray, amen.